Father, we come with a lot of requests. We come with a lot of anxiety. We come with a lot of stress. We come with a lot of feelings that we don't know quite what to call and how to process and and deal with. And we lay it all before you, trusting that you are loving and good, faithful God. As you see us as sons and daughters, that in you we can find refuge and strength. And we pray that as we worship and as we look at the scriptures and as we seek to encounter you, that we would be filled up, that we would be encouraged, that we would be sent out to be the hands and feet, to be your your love in a concrete way to our neighbors and our families and our communities. And we pray this morning, Father, that we would be able to quiet our minds with all the distractions going on and, and, and just listen from, for a word from you. Listen to um, your spirit speak to us in the quiet places that we might be transformed. And it's in the name of your son that we pray all these things, saying, Amen. Well, it's been a while since we've seen each other, and it's been a long week. Um, but it's good to be with you all. I uh, yesterday had to ask Lindsay what day it was. I was a little confused. Anyone else there like lost days for a while? Luckily, this morning, the Houston Chronicle put out a timeline uh, for those who don't know what day it is. And I was like, that is my, my paper right there. Um, it's been a hard week for me to process. Um, so, you know, all kinds of things are happening. The storm hits. Um, you're not sure what it's going to look like. And the storm starts to get worse and worse. Um, and then it is a free-for-all. Um, if your experience was like mine, trying to keep up with people, trying to pray for people, itching to help people. Um, and I'm at a point where I still have not processed it all. And I imagine that in a few years, I'll still be processing things. Um, and I imagine that maybe some of you still haven't processed quite everything that you experienced. Maybe you have some questions still, some tension still, some uncertainty about the future, questions about the past. And so when I get kind of flustered like that, and when I can't kind of deal with what's going on in my mind and, and what's around me, I do two things. The first thing I do is I like to learn languages. So um, I'm going to invite you slash make you join me in this misery, Okay. So I want to teach you a couple of Hebrew words this morning, um, and I want to invite you, slash, I'm telling you to do so. You kind of have to. You're here. Um, so here are the two words. Ready? The first word is ra'ah. It's two syllables. Ra'ah. Very, very, very good. The second one is navat. Navat. Now here's the thing. We're getting more podcast listeners, so we're going to do that one more time, but really loudly so that people think this is like filled with hundreds of people, Okay. <laughs> Ra'ah. Ra'ah. Oh my gosh, they're going to like that. Navat. Now look to the person on your left and say Ra'ah. Ra'ah. Look to the person on your right and say Navat. Ra'ah. You have no idea what you just told that person. And you might be ashamed in a few moments. We'll come back to those words, Ra'ah and Navat. The other thing I like to do is I like to look for other artistic pieces that might help me understand and experience and put words to what I've gone through and what I'm feeling. Um, This is one of the reasons I love 
watching movies and reading memoirs where someone kind of tells their autobiography but with their own perspective. Because a lot of times I see my own life in those stories or in bits and pieces of those stories. And, and, and a lot of times I'll, I'll see how they describe going through a situation and I'll be like, that's the word for it. That's what happened to me. This is the framework that now I can see that through. This is the metaphor that I can use. It, it works with poetry as well. I think that's one of the reasons poetry is so hauntingly beautiful and, and lasts the, the test of time is because it gives us metaphors and ways of looking at things that we never would have come up with on our own, but yet once we find, we realize they're priceless. This is the way of processing something that we were unable to process previously. And so we are not the first city to be devastated by a disaster. We're not the first group of people to be overwhelmed by our emotions and feelings and our response to that devastation. And so I I thought that this morning we would go to a book in the Bible that was written as a response to a city that had been beaten up by a people who were confused and overwhelmed. And so if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open up to Lamentations chapter 1. Lamentations, it's most people's favorite book of the Bible, so I know you know where to get to. If you're going to freestyle it, head to the Old Testament, okay, on the left side. It's past, so on the right of the Psalms. It's past Jeremiah. I'll help you out even more. It's on page 685. I'll be honest, that's how I found it this week, looking for it. The book of Lamentations is a book of poems written by the prophet Jeremiah. It's called The Weeping Prophet. And it's written about the destruction of the nation of Israel. It's a collection of poems, five poems in particular. Each chapter is its own poem its own self-sustained unit, even though together they do tell a larger narrative. And it's a very, very stylized, very thought through, very artistic poem. You know how we know this? It's because these are acrostic poems with the entire alphabet of the Hebrew language. So for us, it would be like writing a poem where each line started with A, B, C, D, all the way to Z. And if you've ever tried to do that, it takes some skill. It takes some thinking through. If you come across a poem like that, the least you can say is that this person spent some time. They thought this through. And Jeremiah is imagined as sitting on top of a hill looking over the destruction of his nation. The foreign army had come in and and taken out most of everyone. And the prophet Jeremiah is weeping, mourning, grieving over the nation. And he puts pen to paper, and begins to write poetry. And I want to suggest that perhaps this morning we might find in this poetry a way for us to process some of the emotions that we're feeling, a way for us to understand some of the events that have happened to us, and a way for us to proceed into the future. Now, good poetry is um, performed, in my opinion. And so we have a performance of Lamentations 1 for you, that, that we're going to get to. Now, what I need you to know before we listen to Lamentations 1 um, is that there are two characters in Lamentations chapter 1. 
If you were to read through it carefully, you'll notice um, that there is talk of the nation in the third person. So she has been destroyed. She was unfaithful. She has no comfort. And then there's talk in the first person. Look at my troubles and sorrows. I have been destroyed. And so you have a narrator who in chapter 1 is kind of an objective reporter. I don't know if you were watching any of the news in the past week, but you've seen a lot of reporters, right? They're trying to say objective. They're trying to report it. And then you have the personified person here of Israel, Lady Zion. And she speaks up a handful of times throughout the poem. And so we put together this performance of Lamentations 1 so that you can kind of experience and and more fully understand how the two characters are kind of dialoguing with one another and engaging one another. So you're free to look at the text um, while we listen to it. Um, There's going to be a painting, uh, a very famous painting about Jeremiah on the screen. Um, You're also free just to listen to it. Um, If you're following along, some of the words will be different. So we we didn't go straight with the translation um, for the ESV, which we have here in the sanctuary. Um, But it's very close enough that you'll be able to tell where we are. So here is, um, in the the words of a few of our congregation members, Lamentations chapter 1. How lovely sits the city once great with people. She has become like a widow, she who was once great among the nations. A princess among the provinces, she is now in forced labor. Bitterly she weeps in the night and her tears are upon her cheeks. There is no one to comfort her among all her lovers. All her friends have betrayed her, they have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile with affliction and hard servitude. She dwells among the nations and finds no rest. All her pursuers overtake her in the midst of her distress. The roads of Zion are mourning from lack of those who come to the feasts. All her gates are desolate. Her priests are groaning. Her virgins grieve, and to her it is bitter. Her foes have become her head. Her enemies prosper because Yahweh has caused her suffering for her many transgressions. Her suckling infants went into captivity before the foe. And departed from daughter Zion is all her splendor. Her princes have become like stags that do not find pasture. They went without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers the days of her affliction and her wandering. All her precious things they were from the days of old. When her people fell by the hand of the foe, and there was no one to help her, her enemies saw her and laughed at her collapse. Jerusalem has sinned grievously, therefore she has become an unclean thing. All who honored her make light of her, for they see her nakedness. Indeed, she herself groans and turns away. Her uncleanness is on her skirts. She did not remember her future. She has fallen terribly. There is no one to comfort her. Yahweh, look at my affliction, for my enemy has made himself great. The foe has spread out his hand upon all her precious things. 
for she has seen the nations coming into her sanctuary. Whom you commanded, they will not go into your assembly. All her people are groaning, seeking bread. They give their precious things for food to stay alive. Yahweh, look and pay attention, for I have become worthless. Is it nothing to you who pass by on the way? Pay attention and look. Is there any pain like my pain, which was severely dealt upon me, which Yahweh inflicted on the day of his fierce anger? From on high he sent fire, into my bones it came down. He spread a net for my feet, he turned me back. He left me devastated, faint all day long. My transgressions were bound in a yoke. By his hand they were woven together. They weigh on my neck. He made my strength fail. Adonai has given me into their hands. I am not able to rise. Adonai made light of all my mighty men in the midst. He called against me a feast to break my young men. As in a winepress, Adonai has trodden virgin daughter Judah. For these things I weep, my eye, my eye runs down with tears, because my comforter is far from me, one who would turn my spirit. My children are desolate, because the enemy prevailed. Zion spreads out her hands, there is no one to comfort her. Yahweh has commanded his foes to surround Jacob. Jerusalem has become a minstrel rag among them. Yahweh is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. Listen, I beg you, all peoples, and see my pain. My virgins and my young men have gone into captivity. I have called to my lovers. They have dealt treacherously with me. My priests and my elders perished in the city, as they sought food for themselves to revive themselves. Look, Yahweh, I am in anguish. My bowels are in ferment. My heart has turned in the midst of me, for I have greatly rebelled. In the street the sword bereaves. In the house it is like death. Hear how I am groaning. There is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my wickedness. They exalt because you did it. You brought the day you proclaimed. Let them be like me. Let all their wickedness come before you and deal severely with them, as you have dealt severely with me, on account of all my transgressions. For many are my groans, and my heart is faint. I'd imagine there are words in there that we could easily relate to in light of the, the storm, the hurricane that's hit us. All her people, in verse 11, groan as they search for bread. I was there during that. We were told they were fighting for food. We were told they were overwhelmed by the destruction. Now, what I want you to notice here in Lamentations is there's not a perfect parallel to our situation, okay? So the nation of Israel was destroyed by a foreign army for disobeying the Lord. We were beat up by a hurricane, I think unrelated 
to the sins of anyone here in this room or collectively. We'll explore that actually in a few weeks. We're going to start a series called The Gates of the Sea, Where Was God in the Hurricane? And we'll wrestle with some of those tough questions. But for for now, let's just see the comparison here. A city destroyed, a people overwhelmed, and a city responding. And, and, And the posture, the language of Lady Zion as she cries out, she really has one message she repeats it over and over if you're, if you're looking and if you're paying attention closely. It begins in verse 11, the, the end of that verse. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Look, ra'ah. See, navat. Look and see. Then she changes her speech from being directed towards God to being directed towards people around her. In verse 12, Is it nothing to you all who passed by Ra'ah and Navat? Look and see. As she is struggling to cope and come to terms with all of the things she has experienced, her main cry, her main posture to herself, to God, and to the world is, Pay attention! Look at me, see me, know me. These are my needs. This is what I need. This is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm going to and going through. And I want to suggest that that posture that Lady Zion has here of, of looking and seeing, of, of telling herself and telling God and telling others to look and see at what I'm going through is perhaps the posture that we are called to have as we go forward in the days and weeks and months to come. Let me say first that that I think you and I should tell ourselves to look and see at our own hearts. To examine really what's in there. Really what we're going through. You know, the book of Lamentations is, is not very popular, right? Because it's very depressing. If you didn't have a little emotional instability before you started reading, by the end of chapter 5, you might have some problems. It seems odd to us, right? You're not going to really go a whole lot to church services and just read poems about really, really depressing stuff. That's not how you build build buildings. That's not how you have, you know, cool light shows and, and things like that. But if you were to read the Psalms, even in the book of Psalms, over a third of them are laments. A lament is just to complain. It's not to say things accurately. So in a lament, you just get to say what you're feeling. There's no filter. Over a third of the Psalms, the songs of the Old Testament, the songs of the ancient people, were complaint songs. Think about that. I'm not sure I've ever been to a church where the proportion was the same in terms of our worship set certainly not the case here. Not one out of every three songs are we accusing God of abandoning us, of not listening to us, of, of, of killing our friends and family. I mean, that's just not, not the case. But I think in large part, our society suffers because we no longer know how to lament. We no longer know how to grieve. This was actually a profession in the ancient times. You had people who were grievers, mourners. 
who would surround someone in a process of grief and yell and scream and tear their clothes. Because they realized something that psychologists and scientists pick up on, which is that you, you can't take feelings like the ones that happen in a disaster, like the ones that happen when your friends and family in your city are drowning. You can't take those feelings and ignore them. They come out somewhere else. They come out with you distracted. They come out with you disoriented. They come out with you angry at other people, not knowing why. And we need to relearn this practice of lament, of grieving, of being honest. Let me tell you that God is not surprised by what you're thinking. So when, when, you're, when you're praying, when you're crying out to the Lord, look and see, you have full freedom to say whatever it is is in your mind, is in your heart. It's not like if you don't say it, he doesn't realize it's there. Does that make sense? I mean, he, he knows already. You might as, well, might as well get it out. Lament and grieve. We've been taught, I think from a very young age, to be self-reliant, self-sufficient, to not show need. But to not show need is to not realize that we're creatures, to not accept our place as people who are not God, who are dependent on God and on others and on this world for life and sustenance. I want to give you permission this morning to recognize that your feelings right now are legitimate. So for the past few days, I've talked with lots of people. I've talked to people who were, were fine, didn't see any, see any water on their street. I've talked to people who had some needs, but they weren't um, overwhelmingly significant. And then I've, I've talked and, and been in homes where the home was destroyed. They were going to have to start over somehow. And actually, surprisingly, maybe in all three scenarios, everyone has deflected their needs and the sorrow that they were going through. So people who, who were high and dry during the storm are expressing some survivor's guilt. Just let me give you permission today, right? It's okay to be grateful that you are safe. It's okay. It doesn't mean that you don't care. It doesn't mean that you won't help. It doesn't mean that you don't acknowledge. It's okay to be grateful. And if you have some, some significant but not overwhelming needs, it's okay for those to be real needs. It doesn't have to be followed with a, but I know other people have it worse. Of course they have it worse. That's true. That will, that will probably always be true. But that doesn't change the fact that you right now have a need, that you right now are grieving. And then I saw and talked to, to people who, I mean, just were devastated. And they referred to other nations and other countries and said, well, even this, right, is better than what many people around the globe are going through. And it's true, but it deflects you from the process of lamenting and recognizing your situation. The fact that, that there are other things going on in the world that are bad, and perhaps if we were to measure maybe worse, does not take away from the fact that this right now is real. I saw a picture that, that kind of 
put this into context for me. We're going to throw it up. There's some kids in Kenya, and they had this sign praying for people in Texas. At, at, those kids are in need, I would imagine. If not, I don't think you would probably have to travel very far. Been to Kenya, a lot of slums, lots of corruption and oppression, lots of poverty. And yet, as they heard that Houston was hurting, not on the Weather Channel, their hearts went out to you, to our city. It's legitimate. It's real. And unless we grieve, unless we are honest about what is happening inside of us, even if it doesn't seem to make sense, even if it's not politically correct, even if it kind of is wrong, the psalmist says, you have abandoned me. That's, that's, that's wrong. God doesn't abandon his children. This, the psalmist will say at one point, you are no longer listening to me. You've hidden your face from me. Let me tell you, that's just wrong. But it's true of that person's experience. Does that make sense? Look and see. This is what's happening here and now. Yes, there are other things happening in other places at other times but it doesn't take away from what's happening here and now. Ra'ah, Navat. I think we should say, look and see to the people around us. So disasters like this are often a make or break moment for communities. We know it's not going to break Houston or Texas. Houston's strong, right? I think we've all probably felt some pride as we've seen some of the heroics that our, our neighbors have, have taken, as we've seen politics been put aside, as we've seen race and sexuality been put aside, and, and just people embracing other humans, risking their lives for them. I, I was unaware of this. It makes sense now that I've, I've been informed. But often for small churches like ours, a disaster like this is called an extinction moment. Most small churches don't survive disasters like this. It's not that hard to understand, right? Don't take us specifically, but imagine a church that is really struggling financially. They've got 15 to to 25 people there. They'd have no one on staff, which, by the way, that's about 25% of the churches in America, roughly. It's not a real statistic, but it's most of them, large, large, large group. You can imagine, right, if that church gets hit with some damage, there's no one to pay to fix that. If those people's homes are wiped away, they're not going to be able to, to sustain that church and keep meeting together. It's going to dissolve, and they're going to hopefully find other faith families to go to. It's a make-or-break moment. So I, I plead with you, if you have a need, tell somebody. It doesn't matter that it's not the biggest need in the world. It doesn't matter that it's a small need. People who pretend to have no needs are what we call idolaters. They're people who pretend to be God. Even without a disaster, I have needs. I, for instance, can't breathe without oxygen. I do not, though, control 
how much oxygen is in my environment. For the most part, I'm dependent on a lot of things to sustain myself. But a community of people who pretend to be self-reliant, self-sustaining, have no needs of any other people, are really expressing a primal fear. It's the fear to be needy in a community of neediness. It's the fear to add on to other people's worries when they already have worries. But it's a fear that needs to be rooted out and pushed out as the lie that it is. Because no matter what the case is, the community, any community, is needy, has needs. And the individuals that make up that community are needy and have needs. And to pretend that you have no needs, to not let your brother or sister be able to meet or fill those needs is to take away any chance for love and relationship. It's literally to destroy the community. You have to be vulnerable for there to be love and relationship. There has to be some give in your life, some take in someone else's, or vice versa, for community to grow and and form. We've been working hard at the church behind the scenes to, to, to coordinate, to keep up with people. Um, again, like I said, at the beginning of service, from the moment things were, were, were somewhat clear, people from the church have been out on the street. We've been sending money places, sending groceries, cleaning supplies. People have been going to shelters and volunteering. Lots of opportunities are coming our way. I've been getting calls from pastors um, in Florida and pastors in Lubbock, pastors in Washington, offering prayers, offering support. And, and a metaphor for where we are right now in this process, and I get that it, it seems that sure land was largely kind of spared from the more mass destruction that, that we see in other cities and in downtown Houston. But we're at, Mount, we're at the base camp of Mount Everest right now, today. It's a marathon ahead of us. It's going to take weeks, months, and years for some of us to recover, for some of our communities and families to recover, for our city and state to recover. Like it or not, this is probably going to be a moment that is a defining moment in our lives. Next year, at this time, we'll be talking about Hurricane Harvey. It will go down as a marker in who we are and how we responded and what became of us. And we have to commit to not, to not crumble under that, that pressure, to not crumble under that need to appear to have no needs And lastly, we, we need to, like Lady Zion, say ra'ah and Navat, look and see someone pay attention to God himself. To reach out to him in prayer. A lot of people in, in times like this, again, like for a community, it's a make or break situation. For individuals' faith, disasters like these are often a make or break moment. So I can tell you probably hundreds of thousands, maybe millions, will probably lose their faith or, or fall away slowly because of what's happened. And equally, 
some people will probably find faith or build their faith because of what has happened. And here's the call for us. To not get so distracted that we don't pay attention to where we are. And we don't pay attention to where we're leaning. Because the right way to lean right now is towards God. Even if you're upset with him. That's the whole point of a lament. Even if you're confused. Even if you say things that aren't true, but are true. You, you need to lean into him. Now is the time more than ever to pray and pray regularly. Now is the time more than ever to meet and worship as a community. Now is the time more than ever to go serve. We like to say that we're a deep church in a shallow world. And that gets sorted out and we want to be deep individuals and families in a world that often just lives at the kind of status quo level. Now is that time for us to lean towards that. People who, who once had a strong and solid faith and wake up years later without a strong and solid faith usually don't do that on purpose. It's a very slow process where something happens and they never look down at their feet so they never see which way they're walking and they end up in a different part of the neighborhood and are surprised. But if you and I can stake out the direction we're going to go after the disaster right now, if we can say we're going towards the Father, we're going towards the body of Christ, we're going towards the world in love, then I think we will be positioned well for the days and the weeks and the months ahead of us. The good news is, as we cry out, look and see, that we have a God who does look and see. One of my favorite favorite lines in the Bible the, the people of Israel are slaves in Egypt and they're crying out day and night and the narrative turns on one little phrase where it says, and God heard their cries. That's what she's seeking right here, right? Hear my cries. Look at what's happening. And we have a God who has historically and faithfully looked and seen and known and come to the rescue. We have a God who saw and went. We have a God who was incarnated, who became man to be with us and for us, who gave his own life so that we might have life. The scriptures say nothing can separate us from that. If God has given his own life, to rescue and love and protect you. What other thing might come up where he might go, no, that's, that costs too much. That's too much of a sacrifice. Did you ever say, think about it. Is sickness going to separate you from the love of God once he's died for you? Is, is pain going to separate you? Is doubt going to separate you? Is a flood from a hurricane going to separate you? The scriptures say no. Will death separate you? The scriptures say no. Because we have a God who, who sees and looks and comes. Now, we're about to come to the table, and as we come to the table, 
we're invited to respond to God's invitation to see him. To, to look at what he's done and is doing and will do through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. And as we, we come and take communion, um, Chris and the, the band, they're actually going to play kind of a, a lamenting song. I encourage you to, to listen along. If you know the song, you, you, you can sing. Um, there's a, a, a writer who said this, and it's always kind of struck my, my, my mind and attention. Um, it's at least clear that a church that goes on singing happy songs in the face of raw reality is doing something different from what the Bible itself does. If we know anything, we know that. That a church who just sits and pretends that everything's okay is, doing, is going on a different trajectory than the scriptures want to take you on. And so we'll lament at the table we come and, and we are invited to respond to God's statement to look and see, to receive his love. And so in a moment, we'll pray and you'll be invited forward to do just that. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the refuge and strength that we have, knowing that we don't have to be strong, knowing that we don't have to have the answers, knowing that we don't have to be Jesus to everyone and meet every need possible. We pray that you would give us the space and freedom, give us the confidence of your love to express our laments. We pray that you would allow us as a community to come together stronger than ever, meeting each other's needs and serving the rest of the world. And we pray that, that our faith would be built stronger after this than it was before. We still have questions. And we still have emotions that have no names or labels for them. But we still have you. And we pray that your spirit would encourage us and comfort us, would continue to draw us to your throne, to your heart, and to your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.